You're in the right room if you are looking for Alita Bryant, because she's right here. You're also in the right room if you're looking for our, as I mentioned, our CSP Hanukkah program. Can you hear okay? I can't tell. Um, we, um, we wanted to celebrate the memory of one of our uh, patrons and longtime um, board members, Bobby Cherry, who passed away on Hanukkah. Was it, was it a year ago? Because time flies. A year ago, right? And uh, the Cherry family set up an endowment in Bobby's memory. So this is the way we're doing it our first year. We brought in Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Yaskowitz, who you'll hear from and hear about, um, who some of us, who met, who met with them in New York when we all went to New York? Right. Some of us were in New York. That's where we first met you last year. Um, we brought them to Orange County for a series of programs. So some of you had the opportunity to do Pickling with them, Pickling 101, first night, second night of Hanukkah, and third night of Hanukkah, a cooking program, and this is our big community event. So um, please, if you, know, if you knew Bobby, bring her uh, image uh, to your mind as a memory, and um, this is uh, something that I'm very happy that we can do um, each year, something in Bobby's memory, and we're going to try to do it on Hanukkah uh, in memory of Bobby. Okay. So uh, for those of you who don't know, this is CSP, stands for Community Scholar Program, and it's our 17th year of programs in Orange County. Right. I always say, if this is your first program, welcome. You've missed 458 other lectures, but that's okay, because we have an iTunes uh, account uh, podcast, and we have over 200 programs up on iTunes, so you can go to iTunes and listen to our programs and catch up a bit. I wanted to thank Jewish Federation of Family Services for giving us a three-year impact grant starting this year. Um, and if you're involved with Federation, thank you. And if you're not involved with Federation, please do uh, become involved. Uh, I also want to thank Jewish Community Foundation of Orange County uh, for their generous grant that helped us underwrite our one-month scholar program and for uh, having us in the first cohort of the Create a Jewish Legacy program. So thank you, Wendy Aronson. Please, let's clap for Wendy, who's brought an incredible program. If you haven't heard about the Create Jewish Legacy Program, it is transformative to our community. And um, uh, it, we, sh we should all be thankful. Many of your synagogues or institutions are involved. We as CSP, as I mentioned, we're in the first cohort. We're going into our fifth year. We have a legacy group of over 50 people. We have room for more at the table, though. So we'd love for you to join us in our legacy um, community. There are benefits for being in the legacy community, like special events, um, and also... Um, Wendy has assured me that they've done research and people who join legacy uh, circles live longer. So as a Hanukkah gift to your loved ones, give them a legacy membership in CSP and um, your other institution or institutions that you want to support. I know there are many synagogues involved in the program and the JCC and Tarbuk Torah. So um, that's my plug. See me if you want to learn more about legacy or I'll find you anyway, so don't worry. I know where you live. I have your addresses. Because you should know, uh, did you all get the one-month scholar brochure in the mail? Okay, all of you but Joan Kay. For some reason, someone keeps stealing Joan Kay's brochure every year. So I have to hand deliver her brochure. But I had to go through 1,718 home addresses to make sure that we um, knew where they were going. So I do know where you all live. Okay. Um, we also still accept donations for CSP, and the end of the year is coming. Taxes are changing. God knows what will be deductible, what won't. So donate now to CSP and uh, become a member, enjoy membership benefits, and help us to achieve our goal, bringing the best um, in the Jewish world to Orange County. 
few upcoming things I wanted to mention. We have our 12th annual CSP Adult Retreat. We're going back this year where we were last year, UCLA Luskin Conference Center. And our, our special um, guest speaker is Wendy Zerler from New York City. Her topic is movies and midrash, film and Jewish religious conversation. And we have about space for about maybe two or three more couples if you'd like to join us. It's an awesome 24-hour retreat and uh, great people, great food, great uh, getaway. Uh, Yossi Chayas is coming as our 17th annual one-month scholar. The brochures are outside. As I mentioned, you should have received in the mail. His theme for the month are Secret Histories of Unknown Judaisms, and he'll be giving over 20 lectures in the community. I hope you will sign up now for the ones you can sign up for, which are opening, closing, and the class series before they sell out. And um, otherwise, many of your synagogues are hosting, so I hope you will show up and uh, enjoy learning with Yossi. Uh, CSP is going for a final trip in the Trilogy to New York City, 2018. We're going October 16th through 22nd. We may see you guys on the streets of New York or maybe do a program with you when we go to New York. And um, each of our programs to New York, as our two programs, and potentially third program to Israel, they're completely different. So if you missed the first two, we're not. there may be some choices because you get options you can do that you didn't get a chance to do um, the first two times. But on this trip, we're going to explore uh, in Brooklyn. We're going to go to Borough Park. We've already explored two other areas of Brooklyn. And we're going to go to uh, Coney Island, Brighton Beach, the UN. And I hope you will join us. We opened up reservations to our people who uh, started, who went to our other travel programs. And we're already over 50% sold out. So if you want to come to New York, talk to me and register soon. We're also, should I mention that you want to mention the Polish? We're also looking at a uh, Jewish roots trip to Lithuania and Poland. May 2019. So not many people know about it, including my wife, who was very surprised to hear about it last night. But if you've always wanted to know about where you come from, most of you, um, join us on a really awesome trip that we're planning right now with Da'at Travel, which will involve, if you want to arrive early and go see your home village, you can get a private guide and we'll set that up for you. Okay, so please turn off your cell phones and let's get started. I'll tell you who we have here. We have uh, Liz Alpern, co-founder of Gefilteria. She's co-owner as well. A culinary, well, the Gefilteria is a culinary venture that reimagines Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine. And Liz is co-author of the Gefilte Manifesto, New Recipes for Old Jewish uh, World Jewish Foods. Sorry. The book is right here. We only have a few copies left. If you want to purchase it right after the program and get it signed, you can do it. How many copies do we have left? Three copies left. Her career in food is driven by her passion for bringing people together. Based in Brooklyn, New York, Liz travels around the globe as a cook, recipe tester, educator, and entrepreneur. Um, she holds an MBA from Baruch College and is a faculty member in the Culinary Entrepreneurship Program at the International Culinary Center in New York City. She's been featured in, in Forbes magazine, Forbes' 30 Under 30 list for food and wine, and was named one of the Forward 50 for 2016. Jeffrey Oskowitz, co-founder and chief pickler. Who pickled with us a few nights ago? Okay. Um, is a food entrepreneur, pickler, and food writer. He grew up visiting New York's finest Jewish food institutions and has written about all facets of Jewish food for magazines and newspapers. He trained as a pickler at Adama Foods, where he fell in love with the art of lacto-fermentation and has worked in the food world as an entrepreneur and a consultant for small businesses. He co-authored the Gefilte Manifesto with um, Liz... Uh, which came out in 2016, and uh, they are both, they will tell us where they just came back from, a quite interesting adventure. So with that, please join me in welcoming Liz Alpern and Jeffrey Oskowitz to Orange County, California.
Okay. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for having us. And uh, we've just had a great few days here in Orange County. This is, it's amazing here. It's snowing back home. So we are really happy to yeah. be here. Um, so I'm Liz. Jeffrey. And you heard a little bit about us. We have a company in Brooklyn called the Gefilteria. And we, we do many things with our company, including producing artisan gefilte fish that we ship all over the world. And we can, or all over the country, and we can tell you more about that. Um, but today we're going to tell you a little bit about uh, how we got here today and, and, and make a connection with Eastern Europe, which we hope many of you will be going on this trip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just uh, uh one of, the, one of the nice things about being here is we always hear when we visit, we've done events in San Diego, we always think, of, we hear that New York is considered the old country. Um, and so for us, we, you know, as New Yorkers, we always looked uh, to Eastern Europe. So it's kind of funny to, to bridge that gap here. Uh, um, and yeah, and we're going to talk a bit about uh, what, what drives uh, our work reimagining Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine uh, and how we find inspiration. So um, we're going to be doing a Q&A after the talk. So if you can hold your questions till the end, that would be great. But if there's anything you don't kind of get that we're saying or something you want to clarify, please do interrupt us during the talk. But we'll definitely have an extended time for, for some of these questions after. Great. Uh, so growing up, I grew up in uh, the New York area. So did Liz. I grew up in, in northern New Jersey. Uh, and I grew up with these with two sides uh, of, of Ashkenazi Jewish food, of, of the foods of my own culinary heritage. Um, one side was, was, was comfort. It was, uh, you know, my, my mother's matzo ball soup. My sister Dahlia is actually here, and maybe you can connect with me, with me on this, that whenever it was Passover or Rosh Hashanah, our house smelled like chicken soup. You know, uh, whenever I walk into a home that, and I smell that same smell, I just, I'm brought right back to that childhood. I'm right, brought back to that, that sense of comfort. And, um, of can, course... Can anyone relate to that experience? Do we have some yeah. nodding heads? Okay, just making yeah, sure. Very, okay, yeah. It's um, definitely that, um, uh, it's just something so nourishing about, about the, the golden broth. Um, and, of course, uh, this is a deli sandwich. Anyone know where that, that deli sandwich is from? Okay, this is actually the Second Avenue Deli. But this is their double-decker sandwich. Um, so I, I grew up, uh, you know, my father was a kid from Brooklyn, and uh, you know, we grew up going to the, the Jewish delis. We'd go to Second Avenue Deli before we went to a Broadway show. My father made sure I had, uh, I tasted Mrs. Stahl's knishes in, in, that used to be in Brighton Beach, which was considered the best knish place. I see some heads nodding. Anyone been there? You're from Brighton Beach? Right. You agree, Mrs. Stahl's? Okay. So this was the... Yeah, this was the place you had to go to taste the best knish. And so, I, you know, they call the deli a secular synagogue. And I always say that, you know, I, I went to Jewish day school. I studied Torah, Talmud, all of those things. But, you know, my, my, my father was a devout worshiper of, of, of Jewish deli. And uh, I also got that, that deli education uh, as well. And to this day, when I walk by a Jewish deli and I don't go in, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by guilt. You know, I am letting, letting people down. I can't even imagine who is feeling bad that I am not walking in. Um, but that deli, you know, I'm so proud of that tradition. I, I, whenever I have friends visiting New York, I take them out to, the, to experience it. This is something that sort of defines uh, my American Jewish identity. Slide. <sighs> There's this other side of this tradition uh, that uh, is really embarrassing. So um, I, a lot of my non-Jewish friends, and even many of my Jewish friends, they think that Jewish food comes from the kosher aisle in the supermarket. You can see a photo uh, to the right there. They think that latkes and matzo balls come in powdered forms in a box. 
that uh, bean soups come in these little plastic tubes, you know, with a little foil packet, that borscht comes in a jar, and that gefilte fish is perhaps the most, uh, I don't know, distasteful-looking, uh, um, discolored blob, blobs <laughs> in a jar suspended in gel. And, uh, and this is what represents the tradition. Um, what do we say about the kosher aisle? We call the kosher aisle in the supermarket the place where Jewish food inspiration goes to die. <sighs> and um, and it's and it, really, I mean, especially when you go down, you see the, you have all the international foods. Somehow, somehow the kosher aisle stands out because its packaging looks like it's still in the 1950s, you know. And and um, yeah, and that was just hard to wrestle with that idea uh, when you want to be proud of your own food heritage. And of course, we have. Anyone know what this photo is on the left here? Cholent. Um, there's this idea that, that Jewish food, tell me if this, if this resonates, is heavy, fatty, overcooked. Uh, anyone, anyone, does that connect with anyone? Um, and uh, that's something that I heard a lot, uh, and I still hear from a lot of people, that this food is, is only for the, the, the darkest winter times, and if you eat this food, you are going to be destined to a life of poor health. And... And how can that be? I mean, you know, I, 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 I had these two ideas. We both grew up with these two, these two ideas of what Jewish food was. And, and somehow this, this embarrassing version didn't quite work. It didn't quite make sense for us. Um, because uh, uh, Michael Pollan, the, the, the food uh, journalist who writes all about um, the cuisines around the world, says every cuisine has some underlying wisdom to it. Makes sense in some way. The food pairings go together in a certain way. He said only one doesn't make sense, and it's his own, and it's Ashkenazi Jewish food. But I, I, we like to think that, you know what, there is an underlying wisdom, and, and we set out to really find what that is. Uh, and uh, for, for me, uh, and I told this story uh, to the picklers who were there. Who, was, who pickled with us the other day? Okay. Um, the other day, uh, which for me, uh, right when I graduated from college, I moved on to a, a Jewish organic farm in northwest Connecticut called Adama. And this farm uh, had a pickle program. Uh, the tagline was, uh, young Jewish farmers changing the world one pickle at a time. And uh, I moved on to this farm, thinking, never thinking too much about the pickle. You know, I ate the pickle with my pastrami sandwich at the deli. Uh, I got a half sour and a full sour. You know, it was always the, you never paid for the pickle. It came free. You know, on, on a little platter. And on this farm, I, I tasted a, what's called um, a lacto-fermented pickle, uh, otherwise known as a Jewish sour pickle. And um, this pickle was just so, it was um, bursting with flavor. It was effervescent. It was, uh, it was just the best pickle I've ever had. Um, uh, but not only that, um, I had learned that this was made the traditional Jewish way uh, of, of pickling just with salt water, no vinegar. And so this pickle was probiotic. So it actually helped you. Uh, who takes probiotic supplements? Anyone? Anyone eat yogurt for the good bacteria, the acidophilus? This, you just eat this pickle, you know? Because its pickle has the same, it has lactobacillus, uh, the cousin of acidophilus, really good. And I started to understand that the deli sandwich and the pickle, they go together because that pickle helps you digest that pastrami sandwich. And that is part of the underlying wisdom at the heart of this tradition. And um, I, spent, uh, I also spent um, uh, different seasons on this farm. And unlike California, we have seasons in the Northeast. And um, we only had a one-month window when we grew cucumbers. But if we wanted to have pickles later into the year, we had, a, we had to preserve them. We had to pickle them. 
And um, I started to understand that these flavors go together because of the seasons. And, uh, and in fact, the same day that the dill was ready to be harvested, uh, we were pulling garlic out of the field and uh, harvesting the cucumbers. So it all goes together because of that particular time of year. And into the fall, it's sauerkraut season because of cabbage, the cabbage harvest. And I started to piece together, to me, what looked like maybe this cuisine is a cuisine. Maybe it actually makes sense. Maybe there's something that I can really be inspired by. And um, for me, this is what began my journey. And, and Liz, while I was having this experience, Liz was working in kitchens and working with cookbook authors and also understanding uh, how good Jewish food could be. So when Jeffrey and I got together, um, we were both working in the food world professionally. He was pickling, and then he was importing goods from the Negev Desert. He was writing about food. He was deep in food. And I, too, like he said, I was working for a cookbook author. I was working in a pastry kitchen. Um, and, and we were both really excited about Jewish food, but we were the only ones we knew who were excited about Jewish food. Um, so we, started, we just started talking about it, and we, we decided to do a little investigation. And... Um, and, and so we looked to the past, because if there was wisdom to be found, we knew we needed to go a little bit further back uh, than the kosher aisle, right? So, um, for example, you can see here that there's, uh, on the bottom, that is a restaurant in Vilna, Lithuania. And in the 1930s, it was called, um, it was called Fania Lawandos. The, the proprietor was Fania Lawando, a woman. Um, and it was a vegetarian restaurant. And this vegetarian restaurant was not just any vegetarian restaurant, it was where the elite hung out. The elite Jewish artists and scholars like Marc Chagall uh, would, would, would frequent this restaurant. And, and what we learned through the story of Fania Luando that was that there was in fact an entire vegetarian movement within the Jewish community in Europe in the early, you know, in, in the early 1900s. And so here was this entire piece of wisdom, vegetable forward wisdom, that we had not been told about. And, and it just took a little bit of digging to find it. And we asked ourselves things like this. If we didn't know about this, what else did we not know about? Uh, so for example, another, another example is, up here we have a kvass peddler on the Lower East Side. Now who, who's heard of kvass before? Anybody know what kvass is? So not so many people have, we had a couple takers. So kvass is a fermented beverage that was very popular in Eastern Europe. It could be made from stale rye bread. It could be made from old beets. Um, it could be made from, you know, a number of things, lettuce. Um, so lettuce, so, so kvass was this fermented beverage, also probiotic, very healthy for you hugely part of, uh, of Jewish tradition in Europe. It's written about in Yiddish stories. It was peddled on the Lower East Side of New York City, and yet we had never heard of kvass before. It's, it's a little, is yeah, it like we, kombucha? We, it is like we, kombucha. We sometimes call it the Jewish kombucha. Yes. <laughs> That's and, better. And That's in good. our book, we actually have four kvass recipes, and one of them is a, is a, is technically a kombucha recipe. So, so again, this, this hidden piece of wisdom in the past that we had never discovered before. And, and, and so all of this, just to put it in context of what, what, where are we talking about, what does it mean to be an Ashkenazi Jew? So Ashkenazi Jews are technically Jews who are of Eastern European origin, or you could say the Jews that spoke Yiddish. That, that was a huge, uh, you know, thing that brought Jews together across the region. Um, but it's, it's helpful to just know that 
Ashkenazi culture was born in Ashkenaz, which is Germany and northern France. And then as, as things became a little bit less safe for Jews in Germany and northern France, Jews moved eastward. And that's how they ended up in Poland and in Lithuania, in Russia, in Belarus. So, so a lot of the foods that we're talking about were originally conceived of uh, in Germany and northern France, and they, they shifted and changed a bit as they went east. But there is, um, there is a really distinctive Ashkenazi food culture because the terrain in all of these, in all of these countries whose borders were shifting all the time, um, the terrain is very similar. The seasons are very similar. So even though you have re you know, Hungarian foods and Lithuanian foods, um, and we're going to talk more about some of these regional differences, there was a, an Ashkenazi food culture that was that was really similar across the region because they had the same land and of course they all were kosher keepers, right? So, so kashrut also bound together the elements of this cuisine. And um, we, in, in looking back and looking to the past, we also turned to these amazing primary resources. So uh, um, all the way to the right, we have uh, Fania Luando that, that the woman who owned the restaurant, the vegetarian restaurant, she wrote a cookbook in the 1930s in Yiddish. And this cookbook had not had been lost until the 90s and someone discovered the Yiddish version in, in the UK at a garage sale or something. And uh, this book was translated and was published just two years ago, uh, translated by Eve Jochnowitz. And, um, and the book came out and it's 400 recipes that tell the story of how people were eating uh, in, 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 in Vilna, in Lithuania, in, in the 1930s. And one of the things Liz mentioned, there was obviously, this was a vegetarian cookbook, uh, but we also saw ingredients that we never knew were around. I once talked to a, a survivor who grew up in Dubyanka, Poland, about leeks, and she said, oh, leeks didn't exist. We didn't have leeks in the region at all. And, um, and I, took her, I took her word for it. And then uh, there's eight recipes for various different leek things in the Vilna Vegetarian <laughs> Cookbook. And I didn't go back and prove it to her, but I, 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 um, I, I, but I, I felt, I was really interested to know that, wow, there's, there's a lot more diversity uh, than, than what came over here. And we see a very standardized Jewish food tradition. You know, kugels only made here with potatoes or noodles. And she has an entire chapter of kugels that include challah kugel and include kugel with cauliflower and uh, ingredients that, I, again, did, would not associate. Um, the other thing, uh, and you see this also uh, with the Settlement Cookbook. Anyone have copies of the Settlement Cookbook here? Yep. And this is a, right, an amazing cookbook, which originally was meant to teach, you know, teach uh, you know, Jewish women how to, how to make the recipes. And you, it would be passed down. And um, the way that the recipes were once passed down um, you know, by, by cooking in the kitchen, you know, the wisdom was internalized, it got written down. And the recipe started off very short. Um, just like the Vilna Vegetarian cookbook, just two or three sentences. Um, in, in the Vilna Vegetarian book, uh, the recipe for the leek frittata says, um, chop up some leeks, mix in some eggs, and cook it like a frittata, okay? <laughs> so what is the underlying assumption? That you knew how to make a frittata, right? And the settlement cookbook is am amazing, because this book was published generation, um, generations, all these many editions, and the recipes get longer. They continue to get longer, because that knowledge for how to make kugel, you know, you can't just say, oh yeah, mix potatoes and eggs and, and, then, and shred your potatoes and make a kugel. Suddenly you have a lot more 
um, information that needs to be transmitted. And rather than um, the, the wisdom getting passed down from generation to generation, the books got passed down. And I know so many people who cherish their settlement cookbooks because they're family heirlooms and those recipes. And that's, um, and that's replaced a lot of um, that ingrained knowledge that uh, was once part of the Jewish kitchen. Um, and one of my favorite um, aspects of the research we've been doing into sort of the old Jewish food ways is reading through fiction, reading through um, books uh, by Shalom Aleichem. And one of my favorite stories of his is perfect for this time of year, Hanukkah, because uh, it's called Geese. And it's a story of a Jewish woman who buys 30 geese in October to fatten them up. And she fattens them up because around Hanukkah is when you would slaughter your geese in the shtetl, in the old country. Uh, why is this? Because, first of all, it was tradition on the Shabbat tonight of Hanukkah, you would, uh, you'd have, you'd serve roasted goose, and you'd actually fry your latkes in the rendered goose fat. Um, and that was a uh, part of the tradition. In fact, latkes, until they came over to this, uh, to, to the United States, were fried in animal, in, in poultry fat of some kind. So um, there was a tradition of a Hanukkah goose, which uh, I had not heard about until a few years ago, and uh, it blew me away because I always thought, and I was telling this story last night to our cooking class, that Hanukkah made no sense gastronomically. I would eat donuts and fried foods and chocolate gelt, and I'd always get a stomachache. Well, how does that make any sense? Um, and so there's this beautiful story of this woman, uh, and, I mean, and this woman's a very, uh, very salty woman who uh, you know, is trying to make a profit off of it, and she tells you sort of the, the whole story of how, what, what the food culture and the, the, the little mini economy uh, in the shtetl looked like. And of course, the feathers for the, of, of the goose went into making bedding. So um, nothing goes to waste, and you see it all through these stories. And so, of course, uh, we were filled with excitement upon learning all of this. And, and just some people always ask us how we met. Essentially, we met because we were passionate about this food. We were both working in food. We kept crossing paths. But we connected because we, we loved this food. And, and truthfully, we, had to, we cl clung to one another because there really wasn't anybody else who, who cared about this. And so when we found a kindred soul, um, it was, it was very important uh, to us. And, and that's the story of how we wrote this manifesto. Well, we also connected uh, around the time that we were reading articles about Jewish delis around the country closing. And um, we, right. um, a friend of ours, David Sachs, wrote a book called Save the Deli. Anyone had read the book? And it's a beautiful book that tells us, you know, the, the whole history of, of the deli and the delis around the country. But it also was a call to action. So we wrote a manifesto because we saw ourselves as budding revolutionaries in a way. If no one else was going to do anything about this food tradition, we were going to do something about it. Because when we looked around at the artisan markets and we saw all, all different chefs going back to their traditional foods, like an Ethiopian chef cooking Ethiopian food or an Italian chef cooking Italian food, nobody was doing Jewish food. Delis were closing. Nobody's doing Jewish food. And we said, we're going to do something. So this mission statement has really carried us forward. Uh, and uh, it reads a bit like this. We need not accept the extinction of this tradition or of the robust, colorful, fresh flavors of Ashkenazi cuisine. We know that gefilte fish, like borscht and kvass and so many old world foods, is excellent when done right. It comes down to the basics of quality, freshness, care, and creativity. And this was only four paragraphs. This is an excerpt from those four paragraphs. 
And of course, eventually, we wrote a book with the same title. But this was our guiding light from the beginning. And so, in short, we launched a, a company called the Gefilteria, which you've now all heard about. We took on the markets. We thought we're going to take on the kosher aisle. Uh, that was our first stop. So we produced artisan gefilte fish because we said we're, we're sick of the jar and we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> and, and what we quickly realized is that people were hungry not just for products to buy, but they also wanted experiences. So lots of people we knew, all different age ranges, were approaching us to curate and cater meals. And that became a big part of what we did. And so this is actually a meal we did in San Diego, up top at the Leech actually, Tag Ranch. Encinitas. Oh, yeah. it was Encinitas. Yes, very close. Um, and, uh, and, and this was a, a Ratner's-themed dinner. So some of you might know Ratner's. It was an old dairy restaurant on the Lower East Side. Uh, and so we did a Ratner's-themed dinner. And these were people who had never really heard of Ratner's. But through a meal, they were, they were learning about this tradition of the dairy restaurant and the culture of the dairy restaurant on the Lower East Side, complete with surly waiters and stuffing onion rolls into your uh, bags wrapped in napkins. There were definitely a few people who, who yeah, stuffed yep. those, uh, the onion rolls into their bags. And we felt like we did it. Yeah. <laughs> We recreated the experience. We can retire now. For those who yeah. don't know, the, a dairy restaurant is kind of like the anti-deli. It's, it's uh, you sit down and instead of meat uh, and mile-high pastrami sandwiches and these towers of, of, of fatty garlicky meats, you have things like blintzes and borscht and shav, which is a sorrel soup, and uh, you have... Uh, Everything topped with yeah. sour cream, basically. Yeah, a lot, yeah. Of, lot of herring, a lot of fish, uh, uh, all sorts of fish. Have we ever heard of Milky Way? About the dairy restaurant Milky Way? Yeah, yeah. I heard of Milky Way. I have not. Yes. Oh, that's the Steven Spielberg's yeah, yeah. mother's restaurant. Yes. I haven't yes. been there. Yeah, there are very few dairy restaurants left. I think there's only one half. It's considered a dairy restaurant left in New York. But uh, no one wrote a book, Save the Dairy Restaurant. And that, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, um, but they kind of get tied together. But that has really died. So part of uh, that dinner was also recreating a, a lost institution. Okay, wow. so there's another dairy restaurant in L.A. Great. L.A. Right. I mean, yeah. but the dairy restaurant now where there are Orthodox uh, communities is much more pizza often. And, and so this, this institution wasn't even necessarily kosher certified, even though it was, you know, I implicitly kosher. Um, and it, it, it was Ashkenazi food, right? It was Ashkenazi food. So it's true, of course. In an or I, I live in Crown Heights, Brooklyn. There's plenty of restaurants that are dairy. Um, but I wouldn't say that they uh, approach the experience of going to Ratner's, uh, unfortunately. I'd love to live around the corner from Ratner's. Oh, a dairy restaurant in the Lower East Side. I love that idea, Ari. Let's do it. We yeah. love making blintzes. No. Ratner's Rat closed down in 2006. It's now a Sleepy's Mattresses. Uh, that said, the grandson of the Ratner's family, uh, uh, actually the Harmatz family, um, his name is Theo Peck. He's a friend of ours, and he opened up a, a restaurant eatery in Brooklyn called Peck's. And a coffee shop. He and, now has and, two places. And a coffee shop called Peckish. And... The, uh, and they, he serves a lot of different things, not just Jewish food, but the Jewish foods he does are fantastic, and they are immediately derived from his experience growing up and working at Ratner's. I mean, he's a trained chef as well, so um, part of that... Does he still speak as... Right, yeah. 
Yes, yes. Uh, you know, there is no waiter service, so unfortunately not. But he, if you meet this guy, he's in his uh, early oh, 40s. This might be, he might be the oldest Jew you've ever met. Oh, my he somehow gosh. embodies the entire uh, you know, culinary and cultural tradition, uh, despite being uh, of our generation. And he, he has the original sign from Ratner's that was, it's Hamantaschen time, that he puts up around Purim. Uh, and that's like his favorite. I mean, I remember the first year he was open, he was so excited and proud that that was that was still alive, and it's beautiful, Hamantaschen, I can tell you that. Um, oh, um. And, um, of course, we also, I will just say that uh, the other things that have developed as a result of of our work are, are, is that people weren't even just hungry for products, and they weren't just hungry to have experiences and eat. What they also wanted to do was shift their position from consumers of this food to creators of this food and so many people didn't know how to make traditional Jewish foods or don't know because either no one taught them their 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 community you know didn't know or or the foods were outmoded by the time they were learning to cook and um, and so what we found is that people really wanted to learn about the history of these foods and also how to make them and so we have a lot of fun teaching classes and workshops all over the place, especially to younger people, people younger than us, people who are in their teens, who truly are that much further removed from the old country. And, um, and it's amazing to see them light up when they make some of those connections between the past and the present and are empowered to make those foods themselves for their family that has then stopped serving these foods, as you can imagine. So it's, it's yeah. pretty amazing. And so we, we teach a class at Brandeis every summer um, to, to teenagers. And uh, the classes, we actually start at a farm and we have a kitchen classroom. The students learn how to cook. Um, and we make things, simple things sometimes like mandel bread, you know, so, some um, cookies and various things. And these students have never heard of anything. In fact, they've never heard of most of these Jewish foods, whether it's borscht or whatever. Often they think Jewish food is, is hummus and falafel. And, um, and most, of these, most of these young kids are of Ashkenazi descent. So what we find is it's really interesting to think of that's the state of what Jewish food is in the current, uh, the current communi communities around, around the country. And um, part of what we do is teach them a bit about their own family history and make them bring in a family recipe. And, uh, and so um, we actually have students who go back and they make the mandel bread now, like what Liz was saying. Um, we had one student who came in and she once her family... The only Jewish food, the only food that they made was the Hungarian seven-layer cake. And she came in with the mission. She's going to make that and bring it back home and be the one who makes the cake. And she did it. And so that was really beautiful, um, a beautiful uh, moment in our class. So, of course, we also wrote a cookbook. And the cookbook goes way beyond gefilte fish, and it goes beyond kvass. It, there's 100 recipes. And part of the, the goal of the cookbook is to show 365 days a year of Ashkenazi eating. So some of the lighter sides that you would eat when it's not a holiday. Um, or, or some of the you know, vegetable recipes that you would eat in the summer when you didn't just have to eat potatoes and uh, you know, a little piece of meat. Um, but of course, the book also has brought us around the world, and that transitions us into our journey into Eastern Europe, which we're now going to talk about. Yeah, so we, um, in the course of doing, uh, starting the Gefilteria, working on this book, we both went uh, to Eastern Europe uh, a number of times, whether it was to Poland or Germany, just to, 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 to learn and you know, see things firsthand. Um, but we also just got, were invited um, in October by the new museum in Warsaw called Pauline, 
which is an um, amazing museum of, uh, that explores the thousand-year history of the Jews of Poland. And it's winning cultural heritage awards around Europe for being one, really one of the top museums now in existence. Uh, and it's in the old uh, Warsaw Ghetto. It's uh, on um, Anna Levitch Street. Uh, and it's uh, a very special place. I, I imagine your trip will be... It's on the schedule. It's a must-see. It's a must-visit yeah. for and, a day, a whole day. You and one of the go. interesting things is this museum is, is actually targeted not just towards to Jews from around the world, but it's actually t about teaching Jewish uh, the history of the Jews to Poles, to non-Jewish Poles, to understand and learn what's missing as part of their culture. Um, so they, they invited us to come, and one of the things we were doing was to, to cook, but also to connect uh, and be part of a dialogue with other chefs uh, in, in, in Warsaw. And, um, and this... Uh, uh, just in October, we decided to take advantage of this experience. We went there. We also decided to travel around Poland and go up to Lithuania and Hungary. And uh, and um, and while we were there, we had that spirit of dialogue uh, uh, with us, and we were um, learning, but also um, sharing and teaching as well. Um, one of the things we're always looking for, though, is um, uh, ingredients and uh, and understanding certain recipes that don't always make sense to us. So, for example, I grew up eating mushroom and barley soup, and I never thought too much about it. Um, you know, it was, it was never as good as matzo ball soup. You know, I, if it was on the deli menu, I never ordered mushroom barley, you know, but my grandmother made it, and I, I enjoyed it. Um, and one of the things uh, in our research we learned was that, uh, like, wow, you know what? Maybe the mushrooms just weren't that good. Um, and one of the things that we, we just, uh, in, in, uh, we were in the markets in Warsaw, and we were meeting with chefs, and mushroom culture is a real thing uh, in, in, in Eastern Europe. You learn when you're young how to go into the forest and forage. Uh, and in fact, you are making mushroom and barley soup, not with those button mushrooms from the supermarket, but you're likely making it with these, these porcinis, these huge, f meaty, flavorful uh, mushrooms that, that came from the woods. And uh, we actually made a, a mushroom and barley soup with those foraged mushrooms while we were in Poland. And this soup was 30 40 times better, tastier. It was transformative. And, um, and there were so many kinds of mushrooms. And we, every, I'd say almost every day, we ate a new mushroom we had never tasted before. Um, and um, in fact, uh, our ancestors had, <laughs> knew a lot of this information as well because mushrooms from the woods were free. Okay? And when you lived in a shtetl and you were not wealthy, uh, you were getting food from uh, unconventional places. In fact, horseradish was also being harvested. And when is horseradish harvested? It's harvested in the springtime around Passover when you would uh, eat it with gefilte fish. And it's harvested in the fall. when you, It was also very common to have it with gefilte fish uh, in the fall. Those are the two times you would harvest it. And there's a whole culture of foraged berries as well. And, um, and in the Lower East Side, there was a mushroom exchange um, in the in the in the twenties and thirties. Mushrooms were imported from from Poland, uh, so that Jews, Jewish immigrants, would, in order to make the recipes the way they were meant to be made, they would go and buy those imported mushrooms. And it's worth noting that there was there were very few other ingredients that were imported. Usually, Jews are known for moving to a new land and adapting. They adapt to whatever. Pastrami, great example. Pastrami was made. You most like most often in Romania, and it was made out of goose, and it was right, and it was uh, it was cured and then smoked and then served cold. Okay, gets to the new new world. What do you know? Uh, beef is really cheap and geese are hard to find, uh, and suddenly pastrami becomes made of beef and then served hot and served on rye bread that never existed. No one in Romania ever had a, a, a pastrami sandwich on rye with mustard. So that's just uh, an example of this. 
uh, and, and stuffed cabbage uh, is worth noting. And this is a picture of a, of a Polish stuffed cabbage uh, in cream sauce. So um, I think we told this story yesterday for some of you. But uh, stuffed cabbage, this was, um, we were cooking um, a dinner on, on Shabbat at the museum with a chef named Alexander Baron. And we had to talk about which stuffed cabbage we were going to serve. And this was, you know, we just assumed stuffed cabbage was, you know, obviously we figured, okay, the Jewish one was beef and rice, and the, the non-Jewish one was likely pork or something, not kosher. And, um, and, uh, and, and then we, so we talked, and he's like, the chef was like, of course, we'll do beef uh, because it's, you're Jews uh, and it's kosher. But he insisted on doing barley. He said he, he never heard of rice and beef together in stuffed cabbage. This is, it's crazy to him. So we put barley in. Um, and then it came time to talk about a sauce, and we mentioned our sweet and sour tomato sauce. And he said, I can't, I can't do that. I can't serve that. He said, I'll get laughed out of here because that sauce was associated with communist times when cream was too expensive. And so now in, in post-communist post Poland, cream sauce is the, the sauce of the day because that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what shows the, the new wealth of the new Poland. Um, and so we couldn't do the tomato sauce. Um, and then we ended up having to figure out what, what kind of sauce can we do. And we came up with a, a mushroom sauce that we felt like would properly tell the story. Um, but um, uh, what's also interesting is the culture of stuffing cabbage. I mean, everything gets stuffed into cabbage. It's just a, it's just a, a method. It's just like, it's like a blintz. You put all these different things in a blintz. Like a knish, right? You have potato, you have kasha, you have cherry cheese, you have... Uh, you have broccoli, all these different things. You know, this, this is actually a, um, a cabbage, cabbage leaf stuffed with millet. And um, not, it wasn't always meat to begin with. And so everywhere we went, we saw different kinds of stuffed cabbage. And we re realized, whoa, somehow our stuffed cabbage became standardized as one type. And there's so much diversity to this tradition. And of course, um, we, we went outside of Warsaw and we went to near Lublin, which I know is also going to be on the agenda of the trip. And Lublin was a, a very big Jewish center also. Today there are truly no Jews in Lublin, uh, but there are some remnants and some, some remnants that you can see very clearly. And our guide brought us to a bakery that specializes in uh, shebulash, it's called, which is what you're looking at, which is a, a bread that's covered with raw onions and poppy seeds. Now, this seems pretty familiar to people in yeah, the room, I'd say. Biali. Biali, yeah. Pletzel. I mean, people could, there's a few names that you could imagine. Um, but this, this particular bread was a Jewish specialty in Lublin. It was well known and, and associated very closely with the Jewish community. And, um, and when we, uh, when we you know, visited this bakery, we found out that, um, you know, of course there are no more Jews, uh, but that this bread really lives on. And what's interesting is that there are no Jews left to be making this bread, but this, this particular bread has become a, an EU certified heritage bread of the region. So, so that this, and it has to be made a very particular way there are, there are inspectors that come to inspect uh, your, your facility. Apparently there were, you know, 10 who got certified and now there's only three and it's very strict and it's, it's Shebulash Lubelski it has to be called and yeah. It's kind of like champagne, you know, it yeah. has to be from the champagne. Right, region. or Dijon. Yeah. Um, so, so this was very serious. But, but what's interesting is you get the literature and, about it and, you know, the Jews aren't necessarily mentioned at all in this history. And it is sad. And, 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 and one of the things that we, we felt like is it's really sad and it's tough. And we 
throughout our time in Poland, and, and anybody who goes on this trip, you're going to spend a lot of time asking yourself this question, what's Polish and what's Jewish? Where's the line? We don't have a clear answer for that. It's the question that we asked ourselves constantly when we were there, but we felt like this bread brought out this really, it was a really important example. It has a Jewish legacy. There aren't any Jews anymore. What does that mean for this bread? And sitting with that tension and sitting with those questions, I think is one of the most important parts of spending time in Eastern Europe because there's a pride behind this bread. And certainly the woman who baked it understood the Jewish history and cared about the Jewish history of this bread. But, you know, where does that leave us? And, and, and I don't know. And that's the kind of question that you're going to constantly be asking yourself. And, and it's worth noting, we saw this bread and we're like, oh, yeah, it's Bialy, Pletzlach. We tasted it, and it didn't taste anything like either of those. And so it's also different. And this is an, another example of one of those ingredients, one of those dishes uh, or, or, or particular foods that didn't make it to the new country. It didn't really right. make it. And, you know, we, we got those others, but uh, this was a, a, an important discovery for us. And this is our last slide from Poland. That's me in um, the, the door to a root cellar. Uh, we were on an old uh, farm in the countryside, um, and we, uh, one of the things we, we are so interested in is uh, that idea of, of seasonality in this, in this food tradition. And when you, before refrigeration, most Jewish families had root cellars, um, which meant that you had uh, at a very steady temperature, very cool in the ground, you had your vegetables that were, you know, your potatoes and your onions, and you had your beets, and you had those things that are going to last you through the winter. And we had always read about root cellars, always heard about them. We had never gone into one, and we finally got to go in. And it was, I mean, it was probably the highlight of my entire trip to Poland. Uh, and it was just... He was, was just, freaking out, man. It was, he was, it was really freaking out. It was pretty exciting because, you know, as a pickler, and, and you heard my bio, and, um, and I told you a little bit about my experience making pickles, the, the barrels of pickles would stay there. And, and you know, uh, besides the, uh, um, the items like the apples, the potatoes that were going to last through the winter, if you wanted to have those nutrients uh, to make it through those, those harsh, cold months... You were going down there to eat your sauerkraut. To, it was slowly getting more sour through the winter time. You would go down there to eat your pickles, and that was how you were going to survive. I look at this root cellar, and I realize this was how my people survived for, for hundreds of years. Yes. Oh my yeah, gosh. So let's repeat the question. So, so for those who are asking, the question was when you were there, there was this, um, uh, what's your name? Dahlia. Oh, my sister's name is Dahlia. Yeah, so, so Dahlia was asking, when she was in Poland, there was this Jewish-style carp that was served, and it was, uh, but it was served for Christmas. Um, and, and I'm so glad you asked that. This was perhaps the most, besides this experience in the root cellar, the most profound moment of my time in Poland was we were on a panel at this museum with a bunch of Polish chefs, and the moderator turned to the audience, crowd of about 100 people, and all except for one person, non-Jewish, and asked, because she knows about our love of, um, of, of the, 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 the mythology of the carp in the bathtub, and, and, and we grew up with the children's book and all the stories, and she asked everyone in the audience, who here you know, either kept or, or regularly keeps a carp in their bathtub before Christmas? Almost every hand shot up. So I always thought this was a North American Jewish tradition in, the, in New York, in the Lower East Side, in the tenements. Um, what do you know? They all have the same tradition, and they eat basically ground carp on Christmas with horseradish. <laughs> Only on Christmas. But everyone, and, and Poland's a very homogenous place, especially now. Uh, and everyone does the same tradition. Um, and it's. How do you pronounce that 
Vavolnica. Vavolnica. Yes. Its pronunciations are very challenging in Poland. So it, and that's one of the things that I, I love learning how to just get the words out when I finally did. But this idea of the carp in the bathtub, I almost felt robbed of some part of my, my American Jewish culture. Like, wait, and you all eat gefilte fish? And they don't call it gefilte fish because that's Yiddish. Gefilte fish means stuffed fish in Yiddish. So they're eating, they call it ground carp, or some people call it carp Jewish style. Okay? But they eat that for Christmas. How did that happen? And also, to echo what Liz said, where's the line? And um, we know that Jews were often, um, Jews were, um, they, they kept, they, they would um, keep lakes fill, um, stocked with carp, and they were active in the carp trade. Um, uh, who knows, was this a, a Jewish dish, or did, was this a Slavic dish that the Jews borrowed, but then eventually got into the carp industry because they weren't allowed to do other industries? So there's so many uh, interesting questions that, that are revealed. Um, but part of this um, idea of the root cellar, and, and actually we went and visited a few farms, was also reconnecting to the idea of Jews being connected to land, even if they weren't landowners themselves, and uh, connecting to the seasons and connecting, uh, connecting to the terrain, to the, uh, to the soil. And that's something that uh, was lost also uh, when suddenly a bunch of Jews from small towns moved to big cities and, uh, and lost, that con lost that connection and, and therefore lost a lot of the wisdom that went with it. White fish and pike? Yeah, white fish and pike, yeah. So, so the question is, you know, what happened between Eastern Europe and North America with gefilte fish and the types of fish that were used? So in, in Eastern Europe, it wasn't just carp. People used whatever fish they could get. It was always going to be freshwater fish because that's what was available. And carp was definitely the most prominent. If Jew Jews were involved in the carp trade, so it was probably a little bit easier. But frankly... Jews used whatever fish they could afford. So the poorer you were, the smaller little fish you got, and the richer you were, the bigger fish you got. So it wasn't just carp. Carp is certainly the most prominent one, but it's not the only one. When people came to North America, of course they wanted to approximate the flavor as best they could. So Jews and Chinese people were the only ones who ate carp. Um, so that was, you know, truly that, that's like a, there's a very strong link there around carp. So in New York, carp would come through Jewish or Chinese traders, um, but but white fish and pike, uh, for example, are you know they're from the Great Lakes in North America, and and so that was the other freshwater fish that was readily available to coastal Jews, um, and now but nowadays people use everything. So, well, one thing about that is interesting is that the carp is different in Poland, and, and That's uh, true. it's a very it's a smaller fish, and it's not. Uh, the, the carp that we get from the Great Lakes that you may know for your good filter fish is Asian carp, and it's a much, much bigger fish. Yep. And so um, the mixing of it with whitefish and pike, as best we can understand, is an attempt to approximate that uh, European carp flavor. Uh, in Europe, we mixed, we blended some... Uh, well, we didn't. We talked about blending fish as our tradition, and people were shocked. They said, what? That's crazy. How would you, why would you do that? And, um, and that was uh, likely an attempt to get back that flavor that many people knew connected to carp, because carp was one of the cheapest you know, fish you could get, and, uh, and it's so widely available that that was likely what most Jews were eating, maybe not everyone. Um, so that's uh, an interesting piece of it. 
But also, it, it's worth noting again and pointing to this idea of standardization in North America, that when foods came from Eastern Europe and they came to North America, things got standardized because you know all the Jewish fishmongers in New York would go to the market at the same time and order the same fish. Um, and so you just see a standardization. And um, you meet lots of people who don't, you know, some people only use whitefish, some people only use pike. They're, they're, people have very strong feelings about all of this. But this overall idea that there's this, this one combination, um, it probably got started to approximate the f this carp flavor, and then it became the standard, and that's what that's what fishmongers have. I mean, again, in Crown Heights, where I live, my Jewish fishmonger, you know, on Thursday, you can get whitefish and pike and carp, you know, because everybody makes gefilte fish for Shabbat, um, and, and that, that's the only three things anybody uses in, in all of Crown Heights, I'd say. So we, we then went to Lithuania, and um, I think that's also on the itinerary. Amazing. So, so Vilna now called Vilnius, fascinating place. It's a it's a small little country. So we'll we'll just tell you that we were told, and and it came true that you can't really be in in Vilnius for more than forty eight hours without meeting some government official that's very high up or some dignitary. And within the first day we were there, we met the minister of culture and ended up in the Israeli ambassador's house, um, totally by accident. I mean, it was like wow, we we didn't mean to do that um, because it's this small, tight-knit little place, and there is still quite a thriving Jewish community there. And uh, one of their home bases is a bagel shop that they opened a few years ago in their Jewish community center, so you'll all go there, I'm sure. It's kosher certified, interestingly. Um, and, um, and they make bagels, and they make, I mean, they make all sorts of traditional Lithuanian dishes. Um, and, and we learned in, in Lithuania about some Ashkenazi dishes we had never heard of. And that was very interesting for us because we felt like we were the people that have spent the most time in the la you know, studying these recipes. So has anyone ever heard of Imberlach? Who's heard of Imberlach? The, it's, no, no, that's Teglach. So they... <laughs> So, no, Imberlach is a, it's a, almost like a, a candied carrot jelly. You know those fruit jellies that you get? Or Pesach that you get? It, it tastes just like that, but doesn't look like it, and it's made of carrots. It's, it's made more naturally. There's no gelatin in it. So, are you Lithuanian origin? Yes. Okay, that makes sense. Marin present? Marin pretzen. Well, that's actually really interesting because one of the issues we had was we knew a lot of the foods that were being talked about, maybe not Imberlach, but we were just calling them by different names. And we were just. That's a big and thing. And the people there were like, you've never heard of. of uh, whatever. You know, whatever I mean, it was. And we're like, all no. The time. And then we found out what it was. We're like, oh. And, or things that were called by the same name, you know, like uh, Kremslach. Uh, Kremslach, I always associate it with like a pancake, like a matzah meal, cottage cheese pancake. Huh? Like a latke. Like a latke. And what and what what is it there? It was a matzo ball rolled in cinnamon sugar. <laughs> and they were so excited to share it with us. They brought it out. They said, "You have to try these kremslach." And we said, "Sure, we'd love to try these kremslach." And it was, "What are we talking about here?" And imberlach, the same thing. So it's it's very exciting that you made those. Uh, I have since been in touch with some Lithuanian, you know, or or originally Lithuanian friends and. It seems like it hasn't totally made it over for many people to North America or South Africa. I asked some South African Lithuanians as well. Hadn't heard of it. 
We know, of course, people are still making it, but here was something that did not make it to the mainstream Ashkenazi canon, but there, this was, the thing. they had little gift bags that you would buy. I mean, this was the thing, and the Kremslach was the same. So uh, what a fascinating place. Um, they had bagels, which we were very familiar with. They also claimed that bagels originated in, in Vilna, which, you know, Sure, um, and, and, and so it was a fascinating place because there was a very strong Lithuanian Jewish food culture and we were in, you know, in the center of it. You wanna talk about that gefilte fish? Yeah, so in honor of us coming, they made us an old-fashioned Litvak gefilte fish. And uh, part of that means, uh, I mentioned gefilte fish means stuffed fish. So anyone who tells you that gefilte fish needs to be made with, you know, whitefish pike and, and and carp, and also be served in little canals with little carrots on top. That's, again, part of that. This is a, that's just that's what we do now. But in fact, everyone at one point stuffed their fish. Uh, they would take out the, the, the meat, they'd st stuff it back in, filled with spices and matzo meal, and the poorer you were, the more matzo meal or breadcrumbs were in, and that's just the reality of it. But for the holidays or Shabbat, you'd serve a whole fish on your table, and it looked pretty impressive. This is perhaps not the best photo. Um, this is from my, my phone camera. Um, and they actually used a, um, beets in the stock, so you had a, a beautiful pink, um, a pink uh, gel. And, um, and what distinguishes Litvak gefiltevish is that it's, it's made with pepper and no sugar. And um, there's the great gefiltevish line. So I always talk about there's the, uh, you know, there's the wine beer lines in Europe, right? Northern countries drink beer, and they also you know, use butter. And further south, it's wine and olive oil. And there's the great gefiltevish divide as well. You know, and, uh, you know, and, and the Litvaks in Lithuania and, and these northern, uh, nor northern stretches of uh, the Ashkenazi world, they're using pepper. And further south, it's very, very Polish, very Galicianer to have really sweet sugary gefiltevish. Anyone who here uses sugar in their gefilte fish? And, and who are the no sugar people? Okay, valuable. It's Southern California, so it's confusing. It's confusing, you know? yeah, yeah. It's a little confusing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. who here is using stevia in their gefilte fish? Don't do it, guys. Don't do it. Okay, so, so it was very interesting for us. But um, one of the things I always you know, associated was, um, with peppers is a very peppery taste, right? That would make sense. That wasn't there. And um, we asked about it because uh, it, it, it was a savory gefilte fish. Um, but it wasn't. It didn't have speckles in it, and it, it wasn't overwhelming. And and um, they turned to us and said, "Oh, here, take a look at our pepper." And these peppercorns were huge. They were bigger than allspice. And she said, "She said, take your fingers and break it." And we we broke the peppercorn so easily. Unlike our peppercorns that we think of as really hard, and we smelled it. It was fragrant. It was uh, floral. It was a whole other kind of pepper. And they only they don't they just use it whole and they take it out. And that. We quickly realized, oh my gosh, like we don't even know what paprika filter fish is like. We've been, you know, here using these the, the wrong ingredients to make it, um, and it was just so sweet of them to share this with us. And uh, we both have family mostly in, from Poland, so we tend to we're not I wouldn't say we're not sweet filter fish people, but the the no sweetness at all is not not the easiest thing for us. But um, we really bonded over uh, a shared love of this food tradition, and and it was just so impressive uh, that they made it this way. And um, in Lithuania, the other thing we found is that while we saw sauerkraut everywhere we went in Eastern Europe, this is standard. And anybody who was pickling with us, we, we talked a lot about sauerkraut. But in Lithuania, they put cranberries in their sauerkraut. 
Now, this was something we have never seen. And we've seen a lot of sauerkraut in our day, uh, but we never saw cranberries and sauerkraut. And when we went to the market, it was every sauerkraut booth had cranberries in the sauerkraut. And our, our, our Jewish Lithuanian friend just said to us, oh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the Lithuanian way, cranberries and sauerkraut. Yes, there's plenty. There's cranberries, and there's a lot of cranberries in Europe. I thought they were indigenous to North America. There might be potatoes are indigenous to, uh, yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, what do we what do we think of as a uh, Jewish food? Potatoes, right? Uh, yeah. So a lot of these foods came from North America and found a home in Eastern Europe. Well, I'll quickly just show, um, this was in Budapest, yeah. Hungary, and um, we went to a, a Jewish restaurant there called Rosenstein's, and they also made for us a very different gefilte fish. With paprika in the yeah. gel. Um, and so one of the things we were experiencing going to these different places was, was even within these different parts of the Ashkenazi world, similar, similar dishes, all with their own really strong, uh, distinct flavor. Um, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. So the idea is, isn't it, because it's local, because people, everybody made gefilte fish, but then Hungarians put paprika, and, you know, Lithuanians put their native peppercorns. Yeah. Exactly. But it's also not like paprika doesn't travel, you know, uh, you know, it wouldn't make its way to Poland. In fact, you can find it very easily. It's just also what the local, the local flavors and tastes that developed were as well. And Hungary certainly developed a love of this particular spice, and the Jews who assimilated to Hungarian life also took that particular, um, the, the proclivity yeah. to use paprika. Uh, and this is just a, a dessert called flodni, uh, or uh, flodni. Anyone ever heard of flodni before? Yeah. Yeah. And one thing that's really interesting is among um, among Jews in Hungary, there is a return to a return to flodni. It, it's sort of the tradition is lost a little bit, but there's a vibrant Jewish community in Hungary, uh, and they uh, and there's a number of uh, Jewish pastry chefs who have decided to take take it on, and it's basically this layered. Uh, layered, uh, it, it almost has like uh, apples and cinnamon in one layer, and then pastry, and then it has plum jam, and marzipan. then a layer of pastry, uh, some marzipan. It has uh, ground poppies in a layer, and it's this very layered pastry. It's delicious. It's but, delicious. But what's very interesting is that um, uh, around Christmas time, uh, non-Jewish Hungarians, part of the tradition is to have all of those fillings with pastry separate, and so the Jewish version just puts it all together. And that's what distinguishes it from the non-Jewish pastries. Uh, and and, and um, one other place that we went where um, very unexpected, uh, unexpectedly we found, and we didn't go there on this trip, but I was there uh, earlier this year. For um, Germany had the first ever Jewish food festival. Uh, Nash Berlin. Called Nash Berlin. And uh, a, a, actually a Jewish, Jewish woman from Boston moved there and opened up a place called Fine Bagels, which became not just a bagel shop, but it's a, a Jewish bakery in, in the heart of Berlin. And it's also become sort of a, a center for people who care about Jewish Ashkenazi culture, and not necessarily um, religious, who aren't there to go pray, but they go, they're there to go there to connect. And this place opened, and, and the woman actually ended up hosting this, um, this festival to celebrate a revival of Jewish life in Berlin, and felt like food was the way to do it, because that was, uh, especially for our generation, it's the vernacular of the day. We talk about food, we take photos of the food we eat before we eat it, you know? Um, we speak in, you know, we, we watch um, food, food programs all the time, cooking competitions, and that's just part of what it means to be a young person in this world. And, um, and actually, t talking about delis, 
there's been a deli um, resurgence uh, in the past few years, and there's delis opening up in Los Angeles, and delis opening up around the country, and there's also a deli that recently opened up in Berlin. What's really interesting about this is that we had mentioned um, things like the pastrami sandwich on rye. No one ever had that in Europe. Um, what happened is now Jewish deli from North America has been imported to Eastern Europe. And in Berlin, you can go and get a pastrami on rye uh, that's not, not quite like the pastrami on rye that we know of. It's a little bit different, but with a pickle, and you can get matzo ball soup, and you sort of have to have this Jewish North American influence making its way. Um, one of my favorite stories, there's a place in Krakow, I'm not sure if it's, it still exists, it, was, it still does, called, uh, uh, I forgot what it's called, but it basically sells authentic New York bagels. It's called New York bagels. It's called New York bagels. Um, in order to be authentic in Poland, uh, for bagel, you have to be from New York. But the bagel came from Poland! Or in uh, Vilna, if you buy into the, the story. Um, and so that was so, uh, it's so fascinating how this all comes full circle. I'm gonna go. Okay, so we're skipping a little bit just uh, because of time. But I just wanna um, say, we, uh, this is a, a picture of me hugging uh, Chef Alexander Baron. And this is the chef we made the stuffed cabbage with. And um, after our, um, really our whirlwind trip, we, we had this con concluding um, Shabbat dinner uh, at the Poline Museum. And we cooked all sorts of foods. We made gefilte fish for, for this non-Jewish audience. We, we made kugel made of local seasonal vegetables from the markets. And, and, um, and it really was, um, uh, this dinner was a dialogue to figure out, again, what is Polish, what is Jewish, and Alexander Baron, this Polish chef with no Jewish background, he says one of the biggest tragedies um, of, of Polish life is the, the loss of the Jewish community and the loss of, of that influence and those flavors. And his goal is to recognize that Polish food is Jewish food. He's like, we have that, that influence remains, and he's like, Polish food has a Jewish heritage and a Jewish place. And so part of being there and cooking with him was, was, was getting to share a bit of that for a Polish audience. And, um, and at the same time, we were learning so much um, from him uh, about some of the traditions that our ancestors, uh, our ancestors you know, uh, used, uh, methods that they, that they used in the kitchen that we, had, that we had lost track of, that we didn't know. And so we were able to put this together and, uh, and recognize that, you know what, you know, our tradition is both... Um, it's both Jewish and Polish, and Jewish food, Jewish food in some ways, um, lives on in Poland, even, even without the Jewish community there. And so as we continue to push forward with our, our mission, our Ashkenazi food evangelism, you could say, um, we're really inspired by all the places that we go. And Eastern Europe was, was a particular highlight, and I think we'll be back. But uh, even, even being somewhere like this and cooking a Hanukkah meal with all of you or making pickles with all of you and, you know, knowing that in a week at the end of Hanukkah you're going to be eating the pickles that you made with us, that is so meaningful to us and it's part of this very same dialogue. It's part of the same, the same mission and the same dialogue that we're having in Eastern Europe. So thank you all for being a part of it. And we really appreciate it, and it means a lot to know that, that the passion is not just us two anymore, that you are all sharing in this with us. So thank you very much. Thank you. And we have time for a few questions. Oh, well, so, so the statement was that all of these foods are... All the foods are so resonant, and, uh, and, part, and part of the culture that you grew up with 
exactly the same. And we didn't In mention Czechoslovakia, Czechoslovakia uh, or Czechia now. No, Czech Republic. Czech Republic. No, it, it just changed, actually. Czechia. Czechia. Oh, they canceled it? Okay. I, was saying, I said Czech Republic. It was corrected in Europe just recently. Um, and that was just oversight. There's, um, you know, there's a lot of places. So we didn't talk places. about Ukraine. We didn't talk about Belarus. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Right. Of course. So this yeah. entire region is really connected and, you know, we... Mostly focused on the places we've been because that's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. We I did we, go when I was in university, but and unfortunately we and we definitely want to go. And one thing that was very interesting in thinking about, uh, just one, one thing I'll mention with all the pastries being similar is we were in Budapest and we had a, a Hungarian strudel, which is um, not, not a kind of more of an Austrian strudel, right, which, which is a stretched dough and it's, you know, fold over. But a Hungarian strudel is, um, it's, 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 like, it's a layer. So it's like a, almost like a, a, a it's, it's not a pastry dough, uh, and then it has a, a filling in the middle, and then it has another pastry dough. And I, uh, an, another, another layer of dough. And, um, and I saw that and said, oh, my gosh, that explains my, my grandmother's apple strudel which I always call strudel and always get corrected. By, in, in fact, someone reviewed our book and we have that strudel in them. It was always called a strudel. And they said, you know, oh, and they ha the only issue with the book is that there's a, there's a strudel in there that's not actually strudel. And then in Hungary, I found out that in fact, it's just Hungarian strudel as opposed to an Austrian strudel. And this really just shed so much light. So yeah, there's so much overlap. That's great. Yeah. One, two... And then we'll be around to chat. Like pierogi, pierogin? Yeah, yeah. So in like Russia, would that be like pierogi? Is it sweet or savory? Just make it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Baked. Baked. That sounds to me like pierogi. Yeah. With Interesting. Interesting. Oh, I, well, when you all go to Brighton Beach, you will see that what they have on the street, this is where you'll find it. They have these, these vendors outside of a million different shops right under the subway, and they sell something that is very close to that. Um, they, they will call, there's a few different names that they'll call them, um, but that's where I've had it. I've had it in the Russian neighborhoods, not so much. I haven't really seen that in a Jewish cookbook is one thing I'll say. I haven't seen, yeah, right. But it's, but it's something that you'll find on the street. It's a street food in Brighton Beach and I always get it before I go to the beach. Okay, So she's not much of a cook and wants to know if, her if our recipes are easy and straightforward. Um, so the short answer is yes. Uh, we feel like we took a lot of care to make our recipes very doable. Unlike some cookbooks out there that um, are intimidating, we really tried to make them a lot more accessible. Uh, two other things about it is, one, this is, this is peasant food. This is not, you know, 
crazy fancy food. So if you have basic kitchen skills, you can do every single thing in the book. I promise you that. Think about where this food is coming from. We don't have uh, super delicate pastries in this book. That's not this book. Um, this is the manifesto. This is about those very traditional foods. Um, and the other thing is that what we do is we have a buildup in our book. So we start with pantry staples. We start with the simplest ingredients in the Ashkenazi kitchen and kind of build up. So some recipes might seem intimidating and some will be no-brainers, and, you know, that's like any book as well, so, yep. Okay, so, thank you, thank you. Thank you all so much. We'll, we're here. A few, a, few, uh, a few quick announcements. Number one is, we just sold out, I believe, in all these books. I don't know, Ari seems to... Unless you have more books than these right here. That's all we have, but did you sell them, Ari? Someone said, that's my book out there. So, but you can buy it on Amazon. Number two, you are invited to eat some food on your way out. Number three, we are, it just turns out, you know, we're doing American history, Jewish history backwards. We all kind of live out here on the periphery of the American Jewish world in California, the far west. We've been to New York. We've been to Israel. But the, the American Jewish experience and, and many, obviously, the Israeli Jewish, Israeli Jewish experience comes from Eastern Europe. So we're going to head back there, as I said, in May 2019, if you want to go back to your home country. But we're going to go to New York one more time in October. And uh, a last plug for now, hope to see you all in the new year when Yossi Chayas comes to town for 20 plus presentations. Have a great Shabbos and a great Hanukkah. <laughs>